This is a word fitly spoken. My words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scriptures, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We here at a word fitly spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always, from the fullness the Lord has given us in his holy word. I'm Willie Grills, here as always with Zell and Heidi, joined today by David Apple. And we're talking about another one of the minor prophets. But before that, how's it going? It's going well, Willie. How are you guys? You and Zelwyn doing? I'm alive. Doing well. And we have some big storms have been ripping through lately and kind of messing things up a little bit. But hopefully we should be getting through some of it. So Yeah, we can't lose Zelwyn because a lot of you folks might not realize this, but Zelwyn is the brains behind this operation. All the technical <laughs> stuff, 99.9% of the print media... Zelwyn is our is our go to guy. He's the brains behind this operation. So I hope you don't get strong winds. You know. Well, I've been outed. <laughs> people didn't realize that. I I think they just weren't paying attention. It should be right. obvious. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair so enough. a hearty thank you to Zelwyn, and may the Lord give you fair weather. Amen. Not too, and then for David, not too many tornadoes down in Paducah. No, so nothing. Nothing really to mention of much notice. My kids are in bed and asleep, so. It's smooth sailing for the rest of the night. Well, hey, there you go. Well, speaking of smooth sailing, uh, we want to talk about Jonah. Jonah tonight. And Jonah is one of the 12. And let's recap from a previous episode about the minor prophets. The 12 are the minor prophets. So what's that mean, guys? Just a quick recap. Yeah, we want to stress again the, the significance of the minor prophets is not that they are less important, but only that they're shorter. Their books are shorter in length. The book of Jonah among the 12 minor prophets is fairly unique. I think, Zelwyn, I think you'd agree too, the, that it isn't, it isn't just like a, an oracle. It's not a lot of direct speech from Noah, but it's a book uh, you do hear directly from Noah's mouth, especially chapter two. Jonah. I'm sorry. Yeah, Jonah. But for the most part, it's sort of written in third person, whereas the rest of the 12, almost entirely. Hosea, you get a little bit of his kind of life intertwined with his prophecy, and Zechariah has some sort of historical bits to it. But Jonah is different than the other 12. He's fairly unique within the, the book of the 12. Yeah, if only because he's not what we might call a model prophet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. He's reluctant. He doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to listen. He wants to to run away rather than do what God wants him to do. Whereas all of the other ones, I mean, Ezekiel, you kind of get some weird stuff with him being overwhelmed, but they're at least all willing to go fairly quickly. Yeah, they certainly don't, you know, like Isaiah puts up a little bit of resistance, sort of like Moses did, but that's quickly overcome. Whereas Jonah actually he has some time where he's actively trying to get away from the Lord. That in itself is different. And like you said, this is more a, a book about Jonah and what's happening to him and his reluctance than it is the, the direct speech of the Lord. Because really, the, the oracle of the Lord in, in the book of Jonah is pretty straightforward. Repent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good theme. It's pretty much the word fitly spoken theme at this point, but um, <laughs> it's good stuff. So let's take a look at the uh, historical context then and what's going on at this time. Yeah, uh, when you look f when you look for historical context again in the in this is common to the rest of the 12, you don't have Jonah, the book of Jonah saying really anything about 
the context other than that there's the, still the existence of the city of Nineveh. So you look back into Second Kings, you have a mention of Jonah in Second Kings 14. I'm going to read it here, just one verse. Second Kings 14, 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. Sorry, that's the, that's the verse before. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam. Where am I? Oh, it's down in 25. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. Well, that doesn't clear it up for you guys. I don't know what will. So. Well, here's, here's, the, here's the point. We know that Jeroboam was king from 786 to 746 BC, or roughly thereabouts. So Jonah occurs sometime in that period. So we're talking late in Israel's kingdom. They're almost deported by the Assyrians at this point, but not yet. They still exist as their own kingdom. Yeah, if only because he's going to Assyria and not to Babylon, which would be the case if it was after the fall of Israel. Right. So, I mean, it has to be before Israel falls as a kingdom. Well, I think that just that verse, you, you do get, if you read Jonah in light of kind of Second Kings, or you try to put it back in and fit it into this time period in Israel, you, do, you can get an idea. Not much is said about what's going on in Assyria at this time and in Nineveh in particular, but you do have some background anyways into what's going on in Israel at that time. And Israel at that time is pretty much completely unfaithful. Is that a fair, a fair way to say it? This is 300 years after Solomon, almost 300 years, and the whole history of Israel has been wicked kings who have gone further and further into idolatry. Yeah, I mean, if just as as I was mentioning, the very fact that we're at the very end of the kingdom shows that things are just completely going downhill. They're drifting further and further away in a way that Judah, how do you want to put it? Judah never did because at least they had good kings in Judah. Israel had no good king ever. Yeah, so right, religiously Israel is is on a bad slope from the beginning with Jeroboam and all of the kings who follow after him are like Jeroboam doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord. They have no Hezekiah or Josiah who carry out any reforms. Now, like politically, that isn't always the case that, that because of their idolatry, they're in really bad political shape. In fact, if you, if you look back into second Kings sort of immediately before those verses that I had read there, you have the account of Israel going to war with Judah and actually defeating Judah. So if you're looking at it from a non-theological point of view or a non-religious survey of Israel and Judah, Israel is stronger than Judah at that time. And they're also stronger than Syria. They had all, there's a note that they had just recently come off of defeating Syria as well. For whatever that's worth, <laughs> they're, they're not at the low point of their life politically, but they are at a very low point religiously. I guess the question then that you might want to ask is, well, what does that have to do with Jonah? I don't know that it really sheds a lot of light on the book of Jonah, but it does help you understand part of the, the context anyways of, of as Jonah looks around Israel, what would he have seen 
within his own country. He would have seen a country that had some military success, but had no faithfulness or very little faithfulness. Well, and, and also uh, the, the, the very fact that Assyria is, is kind of looming in the east. And Assyria is, is definitely rising as a military power, even if they haven't come to conquering Samaria just yet, the city of Samaria in northern Israel. For God to come to Jonah and to tell him to go to Assyria, to pagans, to non-Jews, to a nation which they probably fear, even militarily, is going to be very difficult for him. And I think that will inform much of his reluctance to do what it is that the Lord wants him to do. Yeah, I think so. So we've got kind of when, where the the city will kind of fill in. I don't think most any listener has this comprehensive map or anything of where these cities are. So the mention of Gath Hefer, that's referenced in Joshua as belonging to the, the land of Zebulun. So we're talking one of the northernmost tribes in Israel. Actually, I, I think if you look on the maps, this is very close to the Sea of Galilee. So I think I had read in preparation for this about four miles north of Nazareth. So he's actually, if you can compare it with where Jesus lived, he's, he's relatively close, Jonah is, that is, to where Jesus was. Now, the significance of, of being that far north is that they're on the borderlands up in Zebulun. They're the first ones who the Assyrians are actually going to come and come to. So for Jonah, going to Nineveh, this helps us understand some of his his refusal or his hesitancy to go to Nineveh. He's living in a land that knows that if Assyria comes, and there's every reason to think that they are coming, they're going to hit my homeland first, my city's going to go first, my family's going to go first, and the Lord wants me to go and preach to those people. No way. I'm, I'm turning the other way. And if nothing else, too, further north you go in Israel and you have greater idolatry still because one of the Jeroboam's golden calves was at Dan, which would be in the very furthest north. So not only does he know that they're at risk just because of where they live, they're at risk because this is the least faithful part of Israel. I mean, do we want to talk about some of the other uh, geography points then, too? Because we haven't gotten to where Nineveh is. Sure, a couple minutes. Let's take, let's take a look at Nineveh. Kind of important. Yeah, Zellin mentioned a, a minute ago, we're talking east of Israel. It's, it's kind of northeast. Nineveh is modern-day Mosul, Iraq. Am I saying, am I, how's my pronunciation, guys? <laughs> sure. <laughs> we're living in a new age, you know, pronounce it however you if want to. If the hearers are familiar with that. As a reference point, it's it's northeast, but the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrian Empire spreads. At this time in history, it, it's creeping over into Syria. They, they've certainly made their presence known and their dominance known as far west as Syria, as far south into Babylon, north. You've got some mountain ranges up in there. And I don't know how far east the Assyrian Empire is at this time, but they are the, they're not world power, but in this part of the world, they are the, the superpower at that time. Yeah. And also, I, I should mention that when the Bible speaks of them coming from like the north I think or the, the east, the north, uh, you get this great, the Lord in Isaiah is what I'm thinking of. He's going to whistle for the bee of Assyria to come 
It also talks about the king of Assyria as the Lord's razor that he's going to shave his land with. I think that's Isaiah 7. And I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of the reason why, it, biblically speaking, then it would be to the north is because they don't really consider crossing the desert as a sure. direction. You got to go up along the road, up towards the rivers, and then you would eventually get to Nineveh at one of the key points there. But that's that's getting kind of far. <laughs> so with, with the last few minutes of this segment, then let's talk a little bit about some of the difficulties people might have when it comes to Jonah, some of the, the peculiarities. We're going to get into them specifically as we go through the text, but just as an introduction, why might there be some opposition to the story of Jonah? Jonah is sort of a notorious test case for a test case, I guess, for orthodoxy or conservatism versus liberal approaches to the Bible. The biggest one is just a the, the supernatural elements of the book of Jonah. If you reject that, if your presupposition is that these things can't happen, like a man being swallowed by a fish, and we'll talk about fish, whale, sea creature, whatever later. But if that is, if you rule that out in advance, well, then you're ruling out the whole book because that's, at least in the popular reading, that's the main element of the story, right? Jonah, everybody knows Jonah got swallowed by a whale. But if you say that can't happen, well, then you have to interpret it somehow differently. It becomes a parable or a myth or a legend or an allegory for Israel as a whole. And so what do you guys want to do with that? Do you want to take it as mere allegory or or you want to take it as literal? I want to take it as I want to take it as literal. And the reason I want to do that go. is I don't I don't share that starting point, right? That this can't happen. I don't write that out to begin with. But then secondly, the quotation of Jesus when Je- what Jesus says about Jonah and the men of Nineveh is the clincher, I think for for Christians to say if Jesus thinks this actually happened and think when we can talk about that that passage here then i do too mm-hmm. zolan any comment yeah and then and somebody might come back and retort well jesus was only accommodating himself is is the technical term he was just speaking in a way that would make sense to the men of his age but i think we can safely say that if you want to take that approach you can basically explain away everything about jesus and you end up with nothing yeah, you can slowly and slowly chip away at the integrity of the word until there's nothing there. From a worldly perspective, they think they've done good because now you can make the word say what you want it to say. But also, once you begin to deny anything about the word, then you're very close to denying the whole thing. If you say God could not have made a fish capable of swallowing and preserving a man, then you're just a few steps away from saying God couldn't raise someone from the dead. A good common response to that is which is greater, the resurrection, Jesus' bodily resurrection, or Jonah being spit out of the whale? If God can do the one, why can't he do the other? And you know, this is one of those things is, this is where they try to play as if the opponent tries to play as if Christians are juvenile, because Jonah and the whale is one of the Bible stories everyone knows, and certainly every Sunday school kid worth his salt knows Jonah and the whale. And we say Jonah and the whale because that's what we do, because Jonah and the great fish just doesn't <laughs> sound as good. It doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well. But we mean fish. You know, let's let's put some modern taxonomy on top of the Bible. Anyway, the atheist or the agnostic or, or the one who doesn't believe in the integrity of the word, be they a non-believing Jew or liberal Christian or whatever, 
they always want to go to this story because that's one of the first ones you teach your kids. So they're trying to say, okay, see, you're just like some sort of ignorant child believing in fairy tales. And that's not the case at all. We are children of God, but we are also mature Christians who believe that God yeah. does what he says that he did. Well, I think I think it's helpful too. I mean, you can you can look at what Jesus says and the reference he makes to Jonah, but also to the men of Nineveh rising up in the resurrection. I mean, that to me that rules it out that he's not just accommodating, you know, the way that people talked back then that he he thinks that there's actual men from Nineveh who are going to rise on the last day. But what I was going to kind of touch on there's there's a sort of second thing here of if you interpret this as an allegory, say, I think you're you're going to change the whole purpose and the meaning of, of the book into kind of a moral story, an example of what Israel was supposed to do. Whereas, and, and then what you lose is the, the typical element of Jonah, which is what Jesus is bringing out, right? Just as Jonah was in the whale for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the, in the earth for three days. So that it changes it from a moral example of what Israel was supposed to do. And then, you know, the, this is how the allegory typically goes, is that the whale represents Babylon who swallows them up and then spits them back out after the exile. Well, what's the point of the, of the story then of the, of the whole book of Jonah? I guess it just becomes an example of how God deals with his people and how they should obey him. And we don't we don't want to turn the word into just a continuous string of allegories, because when we do that, we really do empty it in search of trying to make it seem more palatable, more agreeable to our what we think is our moral sense. But the Lord uses these things to teach us what he wants. And if we are offended by what it is that God says, because we think that we are so superior that we are so much better than the men of the past, well, maybe we need to learn, first of all, some humility. It wouldn't hurt anybody. All right, and with that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you're hearing and want more, Visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org We're back. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi and David Apple. We're talking about the prophet Jonah. And now we're going to dive right into the text and go through it. And there's going to be a lot here to unpack. It's going to be great. And it's probably going to be better than what they taught you in uh, Sunday school growing up. So let's take a look at it. (laughs) So where do you want to start, David? Well, at the beginning, of course, you've got Jonah's call from the Lord. And it, it's good just to read. I, I think we don't want to read the whole thing, obviously, but a couple of key verses here. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and here's what the Lord says. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. That's the extent of the call. So Jonah's 
call, his commissioning, and the message that he's supposed to carry is one sentence, single sentence. And it's summarized, I, I think, like Willie said before, as repent, right? Call out against Jonah or against Nineveh. And the one of the themes that gets introduced already there at the beginning is the Lord's universal reign over all things. So he's not only aware of what's going on in Israel or down in Judah, but the city of Nineveh and their evil is also before him. He's the universal creator, the universal judge, and he's the universal king of his whole creation. Right. Something I would point out here, just kind of as an overview to kind of help us get an idea of where the book is going. If you skip ahead to chapter three, verse two, you have the exact same the exact same commission again. So the book of Jonah is divided into two major parts. First one dealing with Jonah himself, which is what we're talking about, and then the second one where he actually goes and listens uh, as opposed to his res- initial resistance. So just kind of keeping that framework in mind will help us see some of the bigger picture of the book. It's it's very interesting because Jonah is given this call right at the beginning. And Jonah's response is the opposite of, here am I, send me. So instead of going to the north and the east towards Nineveh like he was supposed to, he decides to run west. And he goes down to the sea and gets on a boat and he says, I'm leaving. <laughs> See you later. He even pays to get away. I hadn't thought of this before, Zellin, but northeast is Nineveh. He's goes, he goes directly opposite Joppa, south, and Tarshish depending on where it is, we don't exactly know, is somewhere to the west. So he's just getting on a boat. He's getting out of town and he's going in the exact opposite direction. Because he figures, foolishly, I might add, that if he can get out of Israel and get to some other foreign land, then maybe God won't bother him anymore. He has discerned this call and decided it's not for him. <laughs> yeah. And the, the words, so his, it's, spoken in verse four as he's or verse three, he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And that's gonna that phrase comes up again a little bit later. It you know, where is the presence of the Lord? Well, it's in the Ark of the Covenant in the temple in Jerusalem, but the Lord is not limited to that place, right? Think of Solomon's great prayer of dedication, the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, O Lord, and yet here you meet with us. That doesn't mean that he's somehow restricted to the temple, but his presence, just like his his reign over all creation is universal, his presence is everywhere. Where can Jonah flee? And he's going to make his, his presence known in a particular way, as Jonah is on this ship, on the sea, and then God causes a great tumult to fall upon them. And it's apparently frightening because each man cries out to his own God, and then what happens? Yeah, they're, so they're all crying out. The Lord's appointed this storm. And then they wake Jonah up. Jonah's sleeping. And they wake him up and uh, tell him, hey, join with us in calling on your God, right? If we call on all of our different gods, then maybe one of them will hear us. And l- listen to their their hope is pretty, well, there's no certainty here, right? Perhaps the God, whoever it is, will give a thought to us that we may not perish, going to hedge our bets and maybe somebody's yeah. going to listen to us. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then they then they get the further idea, okay, someone some the gods are angry, obviously. So someone's at fault here. We need to cast lots. And through the casting of lots, they determine that it's Jonah. So interestingly enough, 
the Lord works through the lots, again, not that he's that he's bound to or by some sort of magical power that they that they have over him, but the lots do fall to Jonah, the guilty party here. And so they determine, well, he's the guilty one. And Jonah says, yeah, it's me, toss me over. And that's what they do. And it'll stop. Well, they actually try, he tells them to do it. And then they try to row for a little bit longer and they can't. So they're like, okay, we're, we're tossing him. Before we move on, though, I think what we should emphasize here is one of we're kind of overlooking one of the great themes of the book of Jonah, and that is that all of these things are coming by the Lord's hand. The, the providence of the Lord, I think, forms one of the central points of the entire book, because as, as we kind of mentioned in passing, it was the Lord who hurled the storm upon the sea. This wasn't an accident. It didn't just happen all of a sudden. It was God who sent it. David, you mentioned that the Lord uses the lots to bring Jonah to repentance, to make him recognize that, yes, this has come on his account. And then as he gets tossed overboard, immediately the storm Mm -hmm. stops, right? So, I mean, God is in control here. But then things get weird for Jonah. Yeah, and you're going to see more of this. You're going to see God's hand throughout this entire book. It's, It's the ultimate argument against free will, more than any sophistry that we can come up with or anything. Jonah wants to do one thing and God really doesn't want him to do it. <laughs> but he, he just he just suggests it strongly, Willie, right? <laughs> right. So God makes sure Jonah's going to do what God told him to do. And he goes so far as to have him swallowed by a giant fish. So he's thrown into the sea and he's swallowed by a giant fish. And it's, and it's really great how it comes across in the book because it's just one verse. And the Lord appointed, appointed. so there the Lord has ordained, has raised up this fish, has marked this fish out, this great fish, to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the boat of the fish for three days and nights. And that's 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 the text devoted to the, to yeah, the fish. Right. And that's, <laughs> and that's the, you know, the Sunday school lesson spends most of the time thinking about what must it have been like inside that fish. Or, inside the fish, like, like in Pinocchio yeah, or something. It's very vivid. I mean, there's a whole <laughs> imagination that you can run wild. Somewhere there. there's some there's some flannel graph gathering dust that illustrates it pretty well, I'm sure. Hey, don't mock the flannel graphs. Very <laughs> no, they're, they're awesome. They yeah. should bring them back. Down with <laughs> screens, back. up with flannel graphs. That's the official position. <laughs> Of WFS. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I should should point out here, though, I know we're trying to get through the whole thing. I know we don't have enough time to talk about everything in Jonah, unfortunately. But I think it's also worth pointing out here that Jonah wants to do one thing, but the Lord forces him to do what it is that the Lord wants to do, so that even in Jonah's disobedience, these sailors come to believe in the Lord. They, well, they fear their response is that they fear the Lord exceedingly. The fear of the mm-hmm. Lord, Jonah had said before, I am a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, but he is doing the opposite. So he fears him, but he's doing the opposite of what the Lord had told him to do. So I, I don't know how far Jonah's fear, how much of that fear is the fear of faith, that proper awe and respect uh, and fear of the Lord. But he does say that anyways, whereas these men, as soon as the the sea calms, they recognize all these other gods we were praying to are of no comparison with with the true Lord. So, yeah. So, I mean, my point is, is that even when we think that we're doing, you know, our own will, so to speak, the Lord's will will be done, even in the midst of our disobedience. 
so here we have Jonah in the belly of the fish, and he's not doing what most of us would do, thinking, A, why 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 am I still alive? How is this even possible? And B, how am I gonna cut my way out of here? <laughs> he prays. And he prays a beautiful prayer from the inside the belly of this fish. Yeah. So in chapter two, you actually get the, this is the most that he actually speaks and it's a prayer. It has lots of echoes in the Psalms, but it, but it's not one particular Psalm. You get various Psalm verses and then some of his own words are in, are mixed in here that describe how he's sunk down. He's, he's talking about it in terms of going it down into Sheol and how the Lord is going to bring him back from there. Right. And it ends, you know, beautifully with, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And lo, did the fish vomit him up upon dry land. <laughs> it's, a, it's an amazing book. It really is. It's four chapters, folks. Read it. It'll take you no time. Yeah. So, and what, what he owes the Lord is this. It, here's the proper fear of the Lord. Not just the the saying, yes, I fear, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Uh, but this is the same thing that the sailors had done. But for Jonah, you actually get some explicit, what is what does his thanksgiving actually sound like? Well, he, it's the acknowledgement that what belongs to the Lord is salvation. And so his, his, you know, we're talking about providence. All of God's providence is working towards this purpose, the salvation of his people. Right. So one little significant point here, you know, we keep going back, but the fish vomits him up on dry land, which is another picture of God delivering him because the language of the prayer is being swallowed up by the sea. This is the language of drowning. And then here God has now delivered Jonah, certainly for a purpose, but he's also spared his life nonetheless. And now here he is safely upon dry land. Presumably the fish is beached. We don't know. I'm sure the fish is fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a major concern. (laughs) So now here he is, dry land, and the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against the message that I tell you. This time, Jonah arises and goes to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Nineveh is no small city. It's a huge city. It's a wicked city. And what does Jonah do? Yeah, he preaches, and the, the he preaches exactly what he's supposed to preach, which is a message of just straight up repentance. Right, forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And there's no presentation of the gospel in there, is there? It's just <laughs> this is what's going to happen <laughs> in forty days. God's going to destroy this city. Boo, Jonah! You're only preaching the law. <laughs> he's only preaching the law. They're not going to come to faith. Yeah. Maybe it's implicit. And the people, and the people, uh, wait, wait, let me look here. Let me get my, my glasses. Uh, verse 5, 3, 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. <laughs> what it says here in my, check, check the apparatus, Zelwyn. I, I don't think there's a variant. No, I don't think there's any variant. <laughs> well, I guess they, they believed that he was going to destroy it, right? I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm playing the uh, devil's advocate here, really. <laughs> Yeah, so point is, they believe in God, and then their repentance leads to action, and it's immediate in their fasting and putting on of mm-hmm. sackcloth. So they cover themselves in sackcloth, sit in ashes, rent their garments in twain. But don't you think it's interesting how little it seems like Jonah preached? Very much so. Very much it's, so. It's so. I mean, it says that Nineveh was three days wide, 
And he went in one day and by the same day, the whole city believes. So, I mean, yeah. this, this message spreads like wildfire. Yeah. And, and the message here too, is that the word of the Lord is efficacious, mm-hmm. that the word of the Lord accomplishes what it seeks to accomplish. God raises up this man to bring the people to repentance, not simply to preach repentance, just like talking to a brick wall, but to bring them to repentance, to call them to repentance. And that's what happens. And God delivers them through that. But that's something we need to be to be conscious of. It doesn't take eloquent speech or clever witticisms in order to see people converted, to see people come to the faith. It is the proclamation of God's word simply and clearly. Not to take uh, you know too far of a detour, but that's what we're about. You know, is there a lesson for us and our preaching in Jonah? I think it, we we need to realize. I mean, exactly what you're saying that it's not ultimately our message that does the work. It's or it's not our 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 speaking. You know what I mean. It's God working through his word that accomplishes what he wants. So we shouldn't be so concerned about kind of a results-oriented kind of mindset. Uh, I have to have so many, you could say, altar calls, but that's a bit of a straw man for us. You know? <laughs> right. This idea that it's somehow my preaching that's going to do something. Whereas we can recognize that even when things seem not very fruitful in our eyes, like things are really struggling or we don't really feel like anything's happening. We know that God sends his word for a purpose and and that word will accomplish the purpose for which he sends it. Right. Now there's a couple more things I want to point out before I forget in this. So the repentance goes all the way up to the top. It goes all the way to the king of Nineveh. And so he decrees, you know, the fast and the fast even extends to the animals. So he does this, and why does he do this? He says, who knows? So God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And 3.10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So God acts in response to their repentance as he said he would. But their repentance is important. Yeah, no, that I see what you're saying. It's not, God didn't see their their inner feeling, right? It says he, he saw their, their act of repentance, which was an outward act of sackcloth, ashes, and a fast. And so we, d- we don't want it to, to come off as repent, by which we mean just feel sorry, and you don't have to actually do anything. Now, it's true that, you, I mean, you can't trick God, right? You can't have an outward act of repentance, but without true contrition of the heart. I think what you're bringing out is a good point, that contrition actually shows itself. Yeah, it does something and that God sees that and honors that. And I know that that's an extraordinarily unpopular opinion today, but God does bless the work that he does in us, that he is pleased with the work that he does in us, because ultimately that's all of our good works. And and, and repentance, make no mistake, Mm -hmm. is in a way a good work. So God sees these things and God smiles upon them. And I don't think we need to shy away from that. When we do, we just kind of, again, what do these verses even mean? Apart apart from their plain meaning. You know, do we want to just soften and allegorize them away? So God brings them to repentance and God honors their repentance and God has mercy upon them. And I don't think anybody can take too much issue with that. Except (laughs) our good friend Jonah, apparently. (laughs) 
in chapter four, he becomes. Yeah. So Jonah is, is not, he's not as impressed by this as God is, or maybe, maybe he's impressed, but he's not pleased with it. He, he didn't want to see Nineveh repent. And that's why we spent a little bit of time in the first, in our first segment talking about Assyria and Nineveh and its relation to Israel and, and connection with Jonah. You get here an actual explanation of why he, in his words, why did he run away from the Lord in the beginning? It's because he didn't want to see Nineveh have a chance even, right? He just wanted God's judgment to fall on them with no preaching of repentance. No, he didn't want anyone to go up to Nineveh and tell him the Lord is going to destroy you. He just wanted fire to fall. Yeah, and, and twice Jonah's going to ask to die or wish for death anyway. <laughs> and then you have this, this very interesting. So Jonah goes and sets in the east of the city and he makes a tent there. And he sits under the shade, and he's kind of seeing what's going to happen to the city. And then God causes a plant to grow to give Jonah shade so that he would be comfortable. And Jonah is very pleased with this. And who wouldn't be if God himself erected shelter over you? But then the sun comes up the next day. God appoints, again, we keep having this word appointed, 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 or could be translated ordained, whatever, all of the, I mean, this word comes up time and time again, pointing us back to the providence of the Lord. Worm attacks the plant, plant dies. Then God sends a scorching, appoints a scorching wind, and the sun beats down on the head of Jonah and makes him dizzy. And then he has to die again. And then you have this beautiful conclusion to the book. Yeah, so then there's, we should read it because the it's hard to improve on it. So God said to, to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And it's it's quite it's quite beautiful. God here is expressing his love even for sinners and his mercy for even what would be perceived yeah. as the most wicked. And even in this bizarre thing with the plant coming up and then causing the, the scorching heat to uh, come down upon Jonah, God has a purpose in it and a lesson in this. And that's to teach Jonah that God's mercy is far more than Jonah's mercy. Right. And I think here Zelwyn's division of the book into these two halves is, is really helpful. You had you have a similar sort of a, a parallel between the Lord's instruction of Jonah, his instructions, too light of a word, his conversion of Jonah with the fish and spitting him out. And then here he's instructing him in a, in a somewhat similar way. And I think the, the it's unsaid. But think of the way Jonah's prayer ends. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I think that's the the proper result. The book is kind of a cliffhanger book because it doesn't tell you what did how did Jonah respond to this. Did he say, "You're right, God. Salvation belongs to you," or did he say, "You know, I'm still <laughs> angry. I just want to die." Yeah. Right. And and really, it's it's interesting because apparently God not only has great love for the people, but apparently great love for the cattle. Because that's how the book ends, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right from their left, and also much yeah. cattle. Well, the cattle shared in the fast. The, the, yeah. <laughs> right, the cattle, the cattle, yeah, the cattle, you know, they get a piece of this. Well, I mean, the, the creation groans under the sin of man. Right. 
and creation is and cattle are just as much God's creatures as we are. So. There we go. That's our sound clip, Zoen. We just wanted yeah. you to say that. Yeah, there we go. We're going to be featured on India Today podcast. Um, <laughs> now, hold up, hold up. <laughs> but a beautiful book, great ending. I mean, four chapters all around. Any more comments before we break? Maybe just one. You had, you had mentioned about Jonah's preaching and its connection to the church's preaching. I think the the urgency with which Jonah preaches, there's, there is no, it's not like maybe the Lord is going to overthrow Nineveh. No, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be destroyed. And that is part of what you guys called clarity earlier, but that has to be conveyed that the Lord is not wishy-washy in terms of his judgment. It's the judgment is coming. And now is, you know, this is where I said, there's an, there's an, there's an implied gospel. If there's any gospel here is that you have 40 days. And so the people of Nineveh kind of seize on that and say, who knows, maybe in these 40 days, the Lord is going to relent. Yeah. And see, that's the thing. There's a lesson for us there because they were giving a a timetable. They knew the day or the hour and we don't. But we'll talk about that more after the break here on Word Fitly Spoken. We'll be back in just a few moments. A Word Fitly Spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi, here with David Apple talking about Jonah. We ended the last segment talking a little bit about Jonah's preaching and how it applies to the church today. So let's jump right back into that. Jonah is called to repentance, and uh, the Lord being quick to bring mercy and quick to accept our repentance. Does that have any validity for God's people today? I think if it if it doesn't, we'd be kind of hopeless, right? The preaching of repentance is necessary, and that's certainly a big part of the the theme of the book that's the whole call of Jonah is to go and proclaim that Nineveh is going to be overthrown but then the lord's response to that his relenting of disaster takes the prominent place in the the last two chapters especially as the thing that that the book really focuses on we had talked a little bit about the people at Nineveh getting a timeline in x number of days this is going to happen so there's an urgency to that. Is there an urgency to the Christian message? Is there an urgency to the preacher's task? Well, Paul himself says, if I remember correctly, you know, now is the day of salvation. You know, now is the time of repentance, you know, something along those lines. Uh, we are absolutely called to the the now. Like, don't wait until tomorrow. Don't put this off. Tomorrow may never come. I mean, God may come back. So we don't want to take the Lord's mercy for granted and assume that there's always going to be more time because we don't have that kind of control. Only the Lord does. So yeah, absolutely. The the, the urgency of repentance is something that should still characterize our preaching. 
if only because we don't know when the Lord will return. Yeah, and this, that's a great point, Zell. When the Ninevites, think about some of the ways they could have responded. If, you know, let, let's say they, they believe Jonah or they, they hear him and they're intrigued anyways, like the Athenians when they hear Paul. This is very interesting what you say. Maybe you could come back tomorrow and say it again. Or they, they could say, well, we've got 40 days, so that's a good long time. We've, we've got a whole month that we can continue on in the way we are. And then at the end, we'll, <laughs> then we'll, we'll go on our fast. But it's, it's immediate. And that's part of what we're saying here with the urgency of the preaching of Jonah and also the, the work of the Spirit in giving them repentance and working this repentance in them. It, yeah, it's, it's definitely that urgency. The passage you quoted, Zelwyn, about now is the acceptable time. I think in the verses that immediately follow, Paul says, so don't, uh, don't trifle with grace. Don't assume that this time is going to go on forever. Make the most of the time means repent now while you have a chance so that you may be saved. The task of the preacher is often a difficult one. It's often not a well-received one. But with all of our talk of providence, is there comfort for the preacher there? If conversion is part and parcel of God's providence, then is that strength for the preacher? Or is the mystery then a detriment to the preaching task? No, providence should comfort the preacher because we are being used as the instruments of God's will. And what I mean is that, and, and again, quoting Paul there, you know, how, how will they believe, you know, whom, of whom they have never heard? How beautiful are the feet of those who, who preach the good news. God uses the minister, God uses the preacher to proclaim the word and by his ordaining, by his setting it about, makes that word fruitful, makes it profitable and therefore, we shouldn't be afraid to proclaim a clear message because we have one master, and that is and that is God. You're touching on a couple of things there that Jonah doesn't know how the Ninevites are going to respond, right? He, I, I suppose, his response to God's mercy shows that he actually wanted them to reject his message um, or to not listen. But the Lord has other purposes, and as he, I mean, he knew all along that they were going to repent, but this is the way that he's going to actually bring that repentance about, right? And it's the same Mm -hmm. in our preaching of repentance, the mission of the church, that this has to be a clear note that sounded of God's judgment is coming. Now is the time for repentance. And I think, isn't that exactly what we have in the book of Acts? That's how Paul preaches to the Athenians, is that God has appointed this man, Jesus, to be judge of all things. So now is the time to repent. One of the things we touched on briefly earlier, but we want to unpack a little bit more, is that God's reign extends to all nations. And here you have an early example of God calling other nations to repentance, other peoples to repentance, that salvation is meant for, that gospel promise is meant for all of creation. As Zelwyn pointed out in the last segment, that that God would have all men to be saved. And we even see that in the Old Testament. It's often you know wrongly characterized as if it's only in the New Testament or somehow in the epistles where you start to see, or in parts of Acts, where you see the gospel going out to other peoples, but you actually do have glimpses of it in the Old Testament. And then you also have it really, I guess, at the very beginning with the promises to Eve 
and the promise to Abraham and so on and so forth. But here you do have a concrete example then of God reaching out to others in the Old Testament. Well, even even people like uh, people like Ruth, for example, uh, the Moabite. Right, right. You know, just there's all kinds of yeah, examples. Yeah, it's all over the place, and that's my point. It's it's there all throughout the Bible, but sometimes we get this myopic reading or this simplistic understanding of God working in the world. Well, in the Old Testament, He worked with the Jews, and in the New Testament, He works mostly with Gentiles. Unless you're dispensationalist, then He's going to go back to Jews exclusively at some point. You know, like it was like the Gentiles were just plan B, but really God had all of creation in mind from the beginning when he first made that promise in yeah. Genesis. And his, that, that universal reach is, it's not the same thing as universalism, right? I mean, he doesn't just say, I just love the Assyrians as they are. He actually sends Jonah to proclaim repentance. So he, all nations are saved through repentance yeah. and faith. Yeah, through through yeah, all, all nations are are saved through faith in Him, and therefore all nations should conform yeah. to Him and to His will, and they will do that. Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, and you know, in the eschaton, everything will be ran according to God's perfect and immutable will. And I just said immutable, and I believe that's a subject we haven't really dealt with yet, but that comes up a lot in Jonah. Zalwan, what's immutability? The immutability, the immutability of God. Yeah, and in five minutes. No, I'm just kidding. The, this idea that you you get from the rest of the Bible, where God says, "I, the Lord, do not change." That change implies being subject to something else, right? Being subject to something else, like growth. For example, God does not grow because He is perfect. He's complete. He doesn't have to gain anything. Because he is God. He is so utterly different from who we are as creatures because he is the creator that he's not subject to all of the same restrictions and all of the same realities. I don't even know how to put it. I mean, help me out here, but that we are, right? So we change because we grow, we learn, you know, we grow old. The Lord does not change. And so that's what immutability is. And the reason why that's so important right here. The question comes up is because it says God relented of the disaster and he, and he said he was going to do it and he did not do it. So how does that fit together then with other verses in the Bible? That's really kind of the, the question at play here. I'll just I'll I'll add to it a little bit more. This is similar to a couple of other other. There's a there's a number of other passages where I think in Genesis, the Lord, uh, you have that he repents that he ever made man. I mean, you do get some sort of weird phrases that if you have a, a misunderstanding of what immutability means or what these passages mean, uh, you get some strange ideas. This is where like the whole thing about open theism kind of comes in of, well, maybe God doesn't really know what he's going to do in the future until he gets there as if he was subject to time. That's why I put it that way, Zelman. When we're talking about immutability, mm -hmm. the creator and creature distinction is helpful. God is not a creature like us, and so he doesn't change. I like the way you put it. He doesn't grow on the one hand, but he also doesn't decay. Well, and then just point of clarity, when we say God isn't a creature, what we mean is that he is not created. He is without beginning, without end, and without maker, which completely separates him from us. He, God is the only being that is like that. 
we are all creatures, meaning we were created by something. God, again, neither beginning nor end, God simply is. Dealing with this question then of what, you know, what does it mean that God sees the, the repentance of the Ninevites and then relents of the disaster? Sometimes you hear the language of, well, this is just God condescending to our way of thinking, of putting it in terms that we can understand. And I think that can be helpful, you know, that he speaks to us in the way that we think, because we would find it very difficult to to wrap our minds around not being subject to time or not, you know, growing or not anything like that. That's just so foreign to our way of thinking that we can't really get our, our, our hands around it. But at the same time, the reason why it's so important to bring up here is because it really does touch on these issues of providence and all of these things that we've been talking about throughout the entire book of Jonah. I mean, do you want to react to that before we go on or? I like where you're going here because the we we tried to make a point of the number of times where God appoints things, he ordains things. And if if his control mm-hmm. is limited to some things but not others, then you don't really have the comfort that the doctrine of providence and and God's immutability are really meant to have, right? Well, in a lot of these difficulties too, you know, we try to you know, like with the well he's speaking in language they can understand, he's doing this. And, you know, it might be as simple as that God in withholding information is simply t- teaching through that, that this is what's going to happen. You know, he he's not revealing his will here. And that's where a lot of the difficulties with immutability comes in, that we assume that from this, you know, this was the original intent when the original intent right. obviously was the end result. It's not that God's lying or anything like that. It's It's that God's using these things. Or, or or withholding information or choosing not to reveal things to men for his own purposes in some of these situations. And again, I don't think it's a lie. I don't think God, and I don't think God's changing his mind per se, but it's it's this attempt to show these men, it's, it's like with Lot or with Abraham and Lot, you know, if you'll spare X number, okay, if you'll spare X number, if you'll spare X number of these people, and God's like, okay, if you can find this many people to repent, then or this many people are righteous people, then I'll do this. You know, God. God is much more clever than we give him than we give him <laughs> credit for, and that's that's part of the struggle we have with immutability is because we we want things to be a little more cut and dry than they are often, or we want God to be a little more decipherable than He sometimes is. And he, you know, it's easy for us to look in the scriptures and see how God's hand has moved everything and how it plays out in the end. But when we sit here in our own lives and think. And make no mistake, God's providence is still very active, and God is still, you know, directing our steps. We don't like the mystery of that. We are called to live faithfully and to make wise and prudent decisions according to our reason that God has given us. But we don't know, we rarely know what God has in store. We're all three sitting here doing a Christian podcast, Lutheran podcast, and we didn't even know we were going to be doing that five years ago, right? And that's just sure. an inconsequential thing. We all have children now. We had no idea what their names would be. We had no idea what they would look like. We had no idea what difficulties they would have, their personalities and their strengths. And yet God knew all of that. But that was not going to be revealed to us until the opportune time. And if, if only because, too, like you said, we're trying to, to grasp the, the fullness of, of who God is and what he's doing. But the problem is, is that we can't. 
by the very fact of our creatureliness, by the very fact that we are his creations, we will never know all things. Yeah, and there's just so much that we're not privy to Mm -hmm. uh, simply because of of his hidden counsel and – or is hidden, you know, the hidden God is as in Lutheran theology, it's come, it's sometimes we literally would just say the hidden God, but that's mm-hmm. what we mean is hidden counsel. And again, it just, it just rubs us the wrong way because we want to know everything. It's like Netflix back before Netflix or streaming on demand. This is you good. just kind of yeah. watched a television show <laughs> over weeks and years. And you finally <laughs> eventually got some answers and some results, but now you, you you put on your Thanksgiving sweatpants and you sit down and you watch an entire series in an afternoon um, because you want to know that result. You want to know the answer. You want to know what happens to everybody. Well, that kind of mindset is at play here too. Okay, God, I know there's an end game here, but let's hurry it up. Or what are you thinking here? I want to know. Thanks to Netflix, we're we're not patient. I guess is my is my uh, please please don't sue us, Netflix. Uh, <laughs> You're blaming Netflix. All right. Right. So with the last few minutes, though, and we'll come back to immutability in, in future podcasts, I promise. The last few minutes, we need to address Jesus' use of Jonah. It's, it's simple, and, and Jonah's situation is a port, is a picture of Christ, and Christ is very explicit about that. So you guys want to explain that to us? This should be familiar to everyone, but it's good to end on this note. Jesus r- refers to the sign of Jonah not his disobedience to God's call. That's not the sign that Jesus refers to, but the sign of Jonah is this three days in the belly of the fish, and then he spit out on the dry land. This is a foreshadowing of Christ's resurrection, or his. I mean, it's his death, his rest in the tomb, and then the resurrection afterwards. I don't know if the, I don't know if there needs to be much more said other than that. But you do if when you have that in view, you can read back on Jonah, or you can reflect back on Jonah and see this prayer of deliverance in chapter two, and you can can kind of read it in its full prophetic outlook of deliverance, not just from a fish, but from death. And that's specifically seen in Christ's resurrection, uh, which is then shared as the hope for all Christians. We do, we do want to be careful, of course, with seeing these kinds of uh, types I mean, this is a very explicit one. Jesus himself says it. So, I mean, we don't have to worry about that, but we don't want to stretch it too far. Jesus is not saying that he is like Jonah in every way, because then we would be saying that, you know, Jesus was was unfaithful to his call or something like that, which is plainly not true. But Jesus points to this specific moment in the story of Jonah to say something about his own mission, about what Jesus has come to do. And that is to die like Jonah did in, as Jonah did figuratively speaking in the belly of the whale, to rest in the tomb and to rise again on the third day. All right. And with that, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, Twitter at wordfitly, or facebook.com slash wordfitly. If you want to join in on the discussion, check out our Facebook discussion group, Word Fitly Posting, with a P. That is Word Fitly Posting. Join in, ask questions, disagree, agree, whatever. We'd love to have you. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. Thanks again, David. Thanks to you for listening. God love you and God bless.